Let's take our Bibles this morning and go to Romans chapter 11. Once again, Romans chapter 11. And we'll be looking this morning at verses 11 through 15. 11 through 15, and we'll deal with the subject of an expression that is found here in our text. Um, A couple of rhetorical questions will be the outline, but our subject, if you like to give things a title, uh, will simply be salvation is come unto the Gentiles. Salvation is come unto the Gentiles. Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse number 11, the Word of God says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. But rather through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles, for to provoke them to jealousy. Now if the fall of them be the riches of the world, and the diminishing of them, the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. For I speak to you, Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles. I magnify mine office. If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh, and might save some of them. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, What shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? As has been the case in Romans chapter 11, Paul is dealing with very important concepts, principles, and of course, biblical doctrine. And when he makes reference to the two parties that he has been teaching us about, the Jews and the Gentiles, Paul continues to use them in contrasting in a contrasting manner. He continues to show that why the Jews or Israel was allowed to fall temporarily, as we've learned, uh, was for an intended purpose, not only for the intended purpose that the Gentiles' eyes would be opened, but that even through the fall of the Jews and then the subsequent opening of the Gentiles' eyes to salvation, that the Jews, in fact, eyes would be opened once again so that this was going to be used as the means in which God was not only going to announce salvation to the Gentiles, but also by the saving of the Gentiles, the eyes of the Jews would be opened once again. Uh, As... I have said often, I am not a Hebrew or a Greek scholar. And so I do not say these next things as a means of an expert or a master in languages. Just a simple looking through and over some of the things that Paul makes mention here. But in the Greek language, unlike English, rhetorical questions have a specific structure to them that tells us conclusively whether the answer to a rhetorical question is yes or no. Uh, Sometimes in English language, our rhetorical questions, we're not sure what the answer is. We say, I'm asking rhetorically, but we don't know what the answer actually is. In the Greek language, the structure is a bit different. And Paul, in this section, in verses 11 through 15, is using a Greek literary device. He is using the rhetorical questions 
not to put into their mind something that is uncertain, but to put in their mind something that can be known conclusively. A rhetorical question without a conclusive answer always remains a rhetorical question that is left open to man's interpretation of that question. But the Greek language presents it in such a way that Paul conclusively tells us what the answer to the rhetorical question is. Now you'll notice that as Paul begins this section in verse uh, number 11, Paul begins this portion of the epistle. Remember, uh, this would have been one continuous letter that Paul had written. He uses this first literary device or this first rhetorical question. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Now we know this is a rhetorical question with a conclusive answer because Paul has already told us that Israel had not obtained that which they had sought through their own self-righteousness. However, holding to their works of righteousness had in fact led them to become blind to the truth. Their self-righteousness and their desire for attaining God and his riches in their own righteousness brought them nothing. They had, in fact, stumbled. What did Israel and who did the Jews stumble over? They stumbled over the Messiah. They stumbled over Jesus Christ. They stumbled over what was the most obvious of all things, that Christ should have been the most obvious thing that they would see from all of prophecy. Now, there are a lot of deep mysteries throughout the Scriptures. But the promise and the fulfillment of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is one of those that you just, how do you miss it? But they stumbled over him. And again, the key word is they stumbled. Uh, what did they stumble over? Well, they found that the preaching and the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ was offensive. It was an offensive teaching. And not only was it offensive, uh, but it became that which caused them to stumble. Now, what Paul begins to explore here is the purpose of their stumbling. Why did they stumble? What was God's design in allowing Israel to stumble? Now, in a basic sense, uh, stumbling, again, I'm not trying to be cute here today, stumbling sometimes results in a fall. Sometimes it results in just stumbling and you don't fall. Sometimes it results in a stumble that you fall and you're actually hurt. Sometimes you stumble and fall and you can't get up. Stumbling has many different aspects to it. If I stumble and I don't fall, I've tripped over something, but I haven't fallen. Now, Paul is really using this literary device to really show us the point of what stumbling actually means. Uh, did God want his people to fall and never get up? Or did he want Israel to fall temporarily, but not fully and finally stay down? Well, we have answered that question over the last two weeks. He never intended for Israel to fall and stay down. The blindness that was sent to Israel was sent in part, yes, to the, to the Jews, but there is an elect remnant of the Jews that they are going to get back up. Now, Paul gives an emphatic response to that rhetorical question. Your translation may say something different. I think the best translation, again, is God forbid. God forbid. It is the strongest assertion of that just is not the case. That Israel did not stumble in order to fall and stay fallen. 
It's emphatic. Other translations, again, yours may or may not use this. I did not reference which ones it, it was. There are some translations I, for various reasons, would not even give you what the translation is because the translation is that bad. But others say, by no means or certainly not. So we should not conclude that God's purpose in stumbling or the Israel falling was permanent. That's been the entire subject of Romans 11. It was never meant to be a permanent fall, but it was meant for a purpose. So as we begin to look at verse 11 and we study through verse 15, remember we saw last week, we spent an amount of time dealing, a great amount of time dealing with the doctrine of reprobation, where God, and we looked at Romans 1, how man is without excuse and man turns the glory of God into things and images of his own desire, that God in reprobation and his right justice gives the sinner and leaves them, gives them over to the hardness of their heart. And yet he says man is not without fault in that due to the rejection of the free grace of God, which is being proclaimed. So man brings upon himself their own destruction. Now Paul continues writing by giving this purpose. He says, what is the purpose of God? Folks, one of the things we have got to get driven into our mind is God is not operating according to our purposes. He's operating according to his purposes. God is doing everything he does for his purpose, not for ours. And so God's design is a perfect design. No matter what we say to it or about it, it's a perfect design. So what did God design? He designed that not only would the purpose of God be in Israel's fall, even though it's temporarily, there's a purpose not only towards the Gentiles, but there's also a purpose towards Israel. So our outline today is going to be based on three rhetorical questions that are asked in this text in verses 11 through 15. We've already introduced the first question that's in verse 11. Have they stumbled that they, the they there is the Jews or Israel, should fall? The second rhetorical question begins in verse 12, and Paul explains it through verse 14. How much more their fullness? How much more is the Jews and Israel's fullness because of this? And then the third rhetorical question, what shall the receiving of them, the Jews or Israel, be but life from the dead? So you can very clearly see that Paul is not doing away with his kinsmen. He's not doing away with Israel. He's in no way, shape, or form saying that God is finished with Israel. That's not what he's saying. But he is saying that what has happened to them has been for a purpose and it's been for a reason. And that's the subject and that's the context of what's happening here. So again, let's consider and think about this verse 11, this first rhetorical question and, and dig a little bit deeper. Have they stumbled? We've answered that question. Why did they stumble? But look what he goes on after he says, God forbid. But rather, through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. Now, in my translation, which I have in front of me, is the King James Version. The words rather and the word come is in italics, which means that the translators, when they took it from the original and put it into the English, they added that for clarification. Now, again, as I say often when we see this, it does not change the meaning of what he says. If I read that scripture and I take the word rather out, but through their fall salvation is unto the Gentiles, 
it does not change the meaning at all of what Paul is trying to say. The translators believe that this would help us better understand, but it's pretty clear what Paul is saying here. Now, in order to really understand verse 11, we don't isolate it, but we're going to take it with verse 12. Because Paul now begins that literary device of answering the rhetorical question conclusively. Now, he says, if the fall, if the fall of them, that's Israel, the Jews, be the riches of the world and the diminishing of them, the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? Now, we'll get to that second question in a moment, but we needed that to fully understand what Paul is saying. Now, Paul in these two verses is simply telling us and instructing us in this manner, that if faith has come to the Gentiles because of the very fall of the Jews, Paul is framing this in a way by asking how much more, how much more would, the, uh, would it have come to the Gentiles had the Israelites stood firm? So in other words, if, if this is what happened as a result of the fall, can you imagine what would have happened had they not fallen? Now, it's a, it's a really interesting play on words that Paul is using here, and you, you almost have to sit and read it a couple of times. So what Paul is expanding on here is that the Jews did not merely fall for the sake of falling's sake. In other words, they didn't just fall because God said, I think it's time for someone to fall. But they fell rather with the intended purpose of God to raise them up again. In other words, there is nowhere the scripture says that God intended for Israel to fall permanently. But he also does not say that every single Jew and every single person who's from Israel is ultimately going to be saved. But he does say, just like through Scripture, there is a remnant. And there would be a remnant. Millions of Jews have died in unbelief. There's nobody here today that can argue with that. There's no one here today that can say, every Jew who's ever lived is in heaven today. That's not biblical. So the Jews, there have been Jews who've died without Christ. So Paul is using the illustration of the falling of Israel, the blinding of the eyes. The Bible clearly says that it was God who sent blindness, but that their fall was not going to be a permanent fall. And that because they will rise again, what the Jews should be encouraged by is now the example of what God is doing to the Gentiles. In other words, the Jews that fell should be encouraged now that because of their fall, look what God's doing with the Gentiles to draw them back, the Jews, back again to who God is. That's the way the language is written out there. That's the way the verse is written. He, he talks very, very clearly and when he says that they shouldn't fall permanently, but through their fall, salvation has come to the Gentiles. There's a comma. For to provoke them. Who's the them? Not to provoke the Gentiles to jealousy, but to provoke the Jews again to jealousy. That they would now look and say, look what God is doing with the Gentiles. Now, again, do not understand godly jealousy like our sinful jealousy. God is not envious. 
God is not jealous like we are when we're jealous because somebody has something we don't have in the same sense. But it is the word that Paul uses in a moment, at least again, my translation uses the word emulation. That word emulation has the idea of stirring to follow, stirring to see, stirring to understand. So what you see happening right before our eyes is that God is not simply just going to raise up Israel again. He's by instructing them, but rather he's going to use the Gentiles to win the Jews as a loving father wins back his son. It's really a beautiful picture of what God does. Because God can take the fall of another person and He can use that as an illustration to raise up another and then use the raising up of that other to bring back the ones who fell away to begin with. That's the way that God works. But then Paul goes on and again he says, so if salvation has come to the heathen or the Gentiles by the Jews' fall in order that the Jews' fall is not fruitless. Or we may put it this way, that their evil is not used for good. One of the great mysteries of the Bible is how does God use evil for good? All throughout Scripture, you see examples where God uses something evil and uses it to carry out His purposes. Study the life of Cyrus. Study the life of the Pharaoh. God uses evil for His good. He uses them to proclaim His glory and to proclaim His goodness. And He does it all throughout Scripture. So, if God can even work evil things for good, doesn't that make Romans 8.28 when the Bible actually tells us that God works, what does it say? And we know that all things work together for good. Now we like to say, oh no, it should say all good things. That's not what the Scripture says. It says all things God works for good. That means good and evil. So God can take an evil situation and use it for His good. His glory. And remember what I said, His purpose. Romans 8.28 is not as much about you as it is God. Now, we use it out of context all the time. We use it in a context. We, we, talk to, we counsel an unbeliever and we try to quote Romans 8.28 to a non-believer and say, God's working it out for your good. Well, He's working out for the believer's good and His glory, but yes, God can bring good out of evil. Again, we look at the world and we say, why does God let evil just continue to run rampant? Because even in evil things, God is still bringing forth good. And that's the part you and I don't understand fully. Because we think, well, God can only bring forth good and He can't use evil things. He's using the evil fall of the Jews to now proclaim what's actually a proclamation for you. Salvation has come unto the Gentiles. You are the direct result. If you're in Christ, you're the direct result of the fall of the Jews. Because you go all the way back and it's been used as an example. It's been used as an example to show us what God is doing throughout this world. So how much more then do we think about it when Paul continues to ask this question that evil can work and God does work it for good? 
So it's God who by permission worked it. Are you going to accuse God today for being wrong by using evil to accomplish his purposes? I don't want to be standing anywhere near you to accuse God of saying, God, you can't do that. You cannot use any means unless I determine what the means are. God's never going to be subservient to you and I. He's never going to acknowledge that and say, oh, oh, I didn't think about that. Is that what you want? I'll go ahead and give that to you and I'll go ahead and change my plan and my decrees for you. No. God is going to continue and will carry out his plan and his purposes and it's going to go unhindered. So if God is the one who by permission works the evil, it's in this sense that the Jews fall serves as the catalyst for the salvation of the heathen. Now again, I want you to remember this. That is not the final object of God's design. We're going to get to that later. But the final object of God's design is not just salvation unto the Gentiles. God's got so much more to teach us. Not just salvation. It's not the final object. Because remember, you cannot ignore the fact that God's still got a purpose for Israel. He's got a purpose for the Gentiles. So he's not saying the only reason I used the Jews in their fall was so that the Gentiles could be saved. There's more to it. They fell and their falling, Paul says, was for a specific purpose. To induce them to emulate, to strive for the blessings of those who have been raised up. In other words, Paul continues to say that even though the Jews would fall, that the Jews fall and then the Gentiles raising up would be used to bring back, raise back up those of Israel who had fallen. So that really shows us a lot of what verse 11 and 12 talks about, about the first rhetorical question, have they stumbled that they should fall? Well, we kind of merge that into the second rhetorical question that begins in verse 12. How much more their fullness, or the Jews and Israel, that's the context. How much more is the fullness of them because of what God is doing by raising up the Gentiles? That's exactly what Paul has in mind here. You see, God purposing by design to continue to carry out and keep his promises to Israel continually. So then look what Paul says to continue to strengthen his argument here. Verse 13, inasmuch... Or, or I, speak, I speak to you, verse 13, inasmuch to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles. Now remember, Paul was a Jew by birth. But he was told to become a prophet or a, an apostle to the Gentiles. Now Paul uses an interesting phrase here, and he's not using it to bring glory to himself. He's not using it to say, uh, I am something special. But he says, I magnify mine office. I magnify my office. If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are of my flesh. Now who are those that are of his flesh? That's the Jews. He says, in as much as I am, by any means, through this, I'm going to magnify my office as an apostle for this purpose. 
that I may provoke to emulation them which are of my flesh and might save some of them. Paul, preaching to the Gentiles, we know when he preached to them, he was rejected. If you go back to the example in Acts 13, we don't have time to cover it all, but Acts 13, uh, Paul, it says of he and Barnabas, then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said it was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, that's the Jews, but seeing ye put it from you, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee. Now, this is what Paul was talking about being the means, right? I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that they should as be for salvation unto the ends of the world. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained, to eternal life believed. Now, I don't care which way you slice it. You can argue this until the cows come home. But that word ordained is the doctrine of election, and that means to be set apart to eternal life. There's no way you can get around this. I've ordained this. I have set, it, I have set apart those that I will call unto myself. Now again, keeping in mind that at one point, the Jews rejected Jesus. Now there's a little hint that we're getting to today. The Gentiles were not fully aware of this, this rejection by Israel. Again, we, we live in a looking back era. So we're looking back and we see all this unfolding before us. But when Paul first turned to the Gentiles, there was not a well-known fact that the Jews had rejected. It, it, it's not like it happens today where if somebody rejects or does something, within 30 seconds, social media tells you about it. It has to go and it, it takes time for this to work its way through. The Gentiles were not even fully aware. This is the beauty of God. They were not fully aware of the Jews' rejection. Not in its totality. And yet we're going to see that God still works and He's carrying out His plan even though the Gentiles don't fully understand all of these doctrines and they don't fully understand all of these teachings. But He says, I magnify mine office. He magnifies the office of what? His ministry among the Gentiles that God set Him apart to do for this reason. That through His office to the Gentiles that the Jews would be provoked. That's what he's saying. I magnify the reason God made me an apostle to the Gentiles was so that I would provoke to emulation, there's the word to jealousy again, not in our human jealousy, them, verse 14, that's the Jews, which are my flesh and might save some of them. So when Paul says I magnify my office, he's not saying I magnify how much better I am than you, that I'm an apostle. I elevate the office in order that you might see that the reason God set me to be an apostle to the Gentiles, set me to be a light, was not only to the Gentiles, but that it would provoke or emulate the Jews back to Christ. Oftentimes, something is offered to us and we despise it or we don't 
want it. Now, I can't give you a specific example today that probably would end up being a crude illustration anyway, but let's say somebody offers us something and we decide we don't want it. But later on, we see what that person who did take it received. And what happens to us? We, in our humanity, we do become jealous. We become envious that why didn't we have, why didn't we take that? Kind of like the example of the parable Jesus taught about the the treasure in the field. A man sells his field and then finds out in that field there was something of great value. And had I known that great value was going to be there, I never would have sold it in the first place. But what's happening here is very similar in that manner. That, that what was going to happen is that sometimes even when we're offered something that is as beautiful as the riches of Christ, at first we're not influenced by that, but we see somebody else take it and now we're influenced by their opinion. Why did they take that? And why didn't we? So what is Paul magnifying? He's boasting very clearly here. He's very much boasting that he, after the fall, the temporary fall of the Jews, is now preaching the riches of Christ to the Gentiles. It cannot go without being said. There was no greater of Jesus Christ who's ever lived than the Apostle Paul at one point. I don't think we take seriously enough how much Paul hated Christ and hated the people of the Christian way. Paul, before his conversion, if he could have come into this church building, again, I'm not trying to be hokey, he would have sent all of you, including me, to be slaughtered or to be imprisoned. He asked permission of his leaders. I want to go and I want to imprison all that are of that way. That was a, that was a mockery of what he was saying. Those people that are of the way of Christ, I want the world rid of them. I don't want them to exist anymore. And yet we still have people who believe that Paul just had his own come to Jesus moment where he just decided to follow Christ. No, you know what he had what happened? He saw the free grace of Christ overwhelm him, apprehend him by God's divine choice, saved him. You know what Paul thinks about Christ now? There's no greater riches than the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's a salvation testimony that sadly Some of us in our touchy-feely world say, well, I want a salvation testimony like that. I want to be a a great persecutor who really just sees the magnificent grace of God in my life. Folks, that's just foolishness. We're not magnifying what we once were. Paul doesn't go back and magnify his sin. He magnifies the riches of Christ. Christ. Quite frankly, your salvation testimony of what you used to be I don't want you to miss this. What you used to be is not really what matters at this point. You say, I used to be a drunkard. Fine, it's in your past. That's what you used to be. Oh, but if I'm going to share my testimony, I've got to tell people what I used to be. No, you tell what you are now. Paul magnified his office. He did magnify what he used to be. He didn't have to water down the gospel. I don't know the full context of this, so I might be wrong on this. I'm wrong many times, I realize that. But I saw an advertisement today for an evangelistic or a revival meeting starting this week. 
And it says very clearly, come here, this man. He has an interesting way of presenting the gospel. Sign me up, because that's what I need. Folks, come on. Is that, is that what God needs? An interesting way of presenting the gospel. Or do I need the gospel presented to children differently than I need to present it to adults? I hope you don't believe that. It has never been your presentation. It never will be your presentation. It has always been a divine act of God. We are simply called and given the privilege. This is what, this is what evangelism is. You're given the privilege to speak the riches of Christ. Not because God needs you. Get that out of your head. He doesn't need you. Paul's magnifying his apostleship and saying, I get the joy and the privilege of speaking the riches of Christ. And in the back of his mind, he knows one who stood and held the cloak and consented to the stoning death of Stephen. And I watched them brutally murder that man. That's the same guy. Yet your testimony may not be that. But it's just as miraculous that you're saved, that salvation's come to you because you didn't do anything to get it. And you're not doing anything to keep it. And over and over again, God's not impressed with our church attendance. He's not impressed with our following. No, we do this out of a love for God. That's the truth of what's happening here. Paul's magnifying. He's only using his office to magnify Christ, which goes right along contextually what he says in Galatians, that I boast in the cross of Christ, and that's it. He doesn't say, hey, come hear the testimony of Paul, and let me show you an interesting way of presenting the gospel so that you can really win that loved one to God, because what they really need is an interesting presentation. Folks, we don't present, by the way, I shouldn't go far on this, we, we don't present the gospel. The Bible says we preach the gospel. And there is a difference. If you just present it like it's something to take or leave, no. The Bible, the, the gospel is a command. It's not a, think about this. It's repent and believe the gospel. Well, that's too harsh to a kid. That's what we're preaching to our kids here. If a young person comes and talks to me about how they get saved and thinks that, you think I'm going to water it down and say, well, let me think about an interesting way to present this. No, I'm going to say, it's repent of your sin. Believe the gospel. Believe Jesus Christ alone. If they can't comprehend those concepts, they're not ready to be converted because God's not converting them yet. I don't have to worry about did I say and do the right things. That's the beauty of what Paul is saying here. Again, these rhetorical questions are not questions that are being asked because he doesn't know the answer to them. He's using them, again, as a literary device to show them that these things are so. So he says, if through this office, through his office of, apostles, of an apostle, that the Gentiles receive these gifts. Now, there's no question that biblically speaking, the Bible talks about that there were things that were given the first oracles of God were given to Israel. And there's a clear place where it begins to say that those same gifts, the oracles, were now being given to the Gentiles. Now they're seeing what at one point only the, Gent only the Jews could see. Again, that doesn't mean God is done with the Jews. But what Paul is doing is he's proving 
the glory of his ministry. His prayer is, and his commission is, that he might save some of them. That some Jews will be moved to seek the riches that he preaches about. Folks, I spent way too much time in the manipulate the emotions camp. I'm not going back. I'm not going back. And you shouldn't either. People, when you talk to them about the gospel, will sometimes cry. That doesn't mean conversion. Sometimes they're crying because conviction has set in. And they know about their past. They know their unworthiness. And you know God has to use all that to really point us to the reality of why we need a Savior in the first place? That's why you're never going to see hear us here at this church sit down and take a small child and say, here's how you get saved. Ask Jesus into your heart. And we're not going to allow that because that's not biblical salvation. But what we are going to do is by example and by proclaiming and preaching the riches of Christ, allow, again, that's a bad word because we're, we're not allowing the Spirit to do anything. I mean, how many prayers have you heard at these revival meetings? God, let us not hinder your purposes and your plan. Like, we can do that. We're not stopping Him. Even our sin is not stopping God from accomplishing His plan because He can use the evil of unbelief to carry out His purposes. The beauty in this passage goes well beyond my ability to even speak on it. But then notice what Paul says lastly, this last rhetorical question. What shall the receiving of them, the Jews or Israel, be but life from the dead? Now, we're all, I think, biblically educated. What is life from the dead? It's resurrection. It's resurrection. Not a resurrection from sleep, a resurrection from the dead. Dead in what? In our trespasses and sins. We're not partially dead. We're not comatose. We're not just apathetic. Before Christ's grace comes, before the grace of God comes, we're dead. No dead man, no dead woman has ever raised themselves from the grave, nor will they ever. You will never be at a cemetery and see someone crawl out of the grave and say, I raised myself from the dead. Doesn't happen. But Paul again asks the question, not because we don't have the answer. For if the casting away of them, again, who is the them, is the Jews, be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them, the Jews, be but life from the dead? Now, if we approach this casually, because it's the last question and the service is almost over, we're going to miss something really important here. You cannot take what Paul is saying in verse 15 casually and say, eh, I got it. Do you hear what he's actually saying? Do you see what he's actually saying? This is something we don't just casually take and chew on a little bit and spit it out, but rather we ought to digest this. It follows a consequence. In other words, upon the unbelief of those Jews followed the reconciliation of the world. 
this purpose of God in blinding the Jews so they would temporarily fall is the means, the result in which the world, all have sinned to come short of the glory of God, would be reconciled to God. Tear out the blindness of the Jews in Scriptures. You don't have the means of reconciliation for the Gentiles. Does everybody understand? Do you, you see what's happening here? You can't have one without the other. So when we say it's unfair that God blinded part of Israel, you know what you're basically doing? You're saying, well, then that wasn't necessary for my reconciliation. That wasn't necessary for my salvation. According to Paul, it was. See, we're, we're so disjointed from history. We don't understand everything that we think we get. And we think, okay, I have nothing to do with Israel. You have everything in the world to do with Israel. We as Christians have everything to do with Israel. Israel matters. But in this context, what Paul is talking specifically about, as he's saying very clearly, that the unbelief of the Jews followed the reconciliation of the world. In other words, once they saw the reconciling beginning, this would have allowed them even to return when they see what's happening. Folks, what we see happening in our world and what we even see happening in our own salvation is you see the grace of God and you see the Holy Spirit being poured out upon us. Again, the Gentiles were not as familiar with the Jews' rejection as you and I are. You realize you know more. You know more than what the readers of what Paul was reading these letters, you know more than they did. We just think everybody's always had a copy of the Scriptures. We just always think that they were meeting and they had everything. No, most of the churches in the New Testament only had copies of the Old. They were reading the letter that was written to the church at Rome. How much more is it for us to look and say, how much do we know? How much now can we look at this and say, the beauty of this, the beauty that I am a direct result in my salvation as to what God has done with the Jews? Again, as we continue on in our text next week, we'll see that if the Jews being rejected is God's plan for the reconciliation of the world, how much more would their acceptance actually bring? What would it be? Paul describes it as one thing and one. There's only one way to describe what the raising again of Israel is going to look like and what it's going to be. He compares it to a resurrection. Folks, I don't know the hour. I don't know the day. I don't know when it's going to happen. But I do know the Bible says this, that one day the eyes of Israel, an elect remnant, is going to be opened. You don't know that day. I don't know that day. Here's what I do know. The Bible says it's going to happen. And when it happens, it'll be according to God's design and purpose and plan, not ours. It's not going to be the result of our prayer. It's not going to be the result of something we did. It's because that's what God has set out to do. He's not done with them. Now, the vast majority of all of us here today, we're not related to the Jew in a sense. We're more related to the Gentiles. There's exceptions, I know. But for the most part, we're probably all identified as Gentiles. And now we're part of that mystery that Paul talks about. We're part of that grafting in that he's going to start showing us as we continue through this chapter.
Salvation has come to us, and the means in which salvation has come to us is the very fall of the Jews. Who did it? God did it. God has worked. God is carrying out His plan. He uses one stumbling to open the eyes of others. And for that, we can certainly rejoice in Christ and what He has done for us. Let's conclude this morning. Let's sing the hymn 294. 294, O Fount of Love.